Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are so thankful, God, for your grace and mercy this morning. We thank you for the chance to gather together to start our week, to be reminded of your beauty and your glory and your worthiness to be praised and for your unfailing, faithful love for us, God. We are here because of your love, not because of our goodness. We are here because of your invitation to belong with you and with one another, God. So we pray that this time together would truly refresh our hearts and renew our minds as we look to you. We pray that every element of our service today would be a chance to know you more, to love you more, and to trust you more. Lord, we thank you for this community. We thank you for the ways that you have been challenging us to love one another well and for giving us opportunities to care for one another. We pray for those of us who are hurting and sick in our community. We ask for your healing upon our bodies and our minds and our hearts. We pray for those of us who are weary and discouraged at this time. We ask that you'll pour out your love into our hearts and encourage us with reminders of who you are and the good promises that you've made. We pray that you would prompt us to be tangible reminders of your love to one another. We pray for those outside of this community who are in need. We pray for our neighbors, that you would give us compassion and acts of love to show them the goodness of our Father in heaven. We pray for Kansas City as they recover from a shooting. God, we ask for the healing and recovery of all those who were hurt. And we pray for your justice to be done. We ask for wisdom as we seek to love our neighbors in our public engagement with our nation's laws and policies, and as we have conversations with one another about the issues that affect us and our loved ones. May our speech be seasoned with grace and kindness and our hearts inclined towards peace. God, we pray for our neighbors who live far away from us, those who are trapped still in war and cycles of violence. God, we pray for your rescue. We pray for your mercy upon them. We pray for the leaders of this nation and of other nations, that they would work together to alleviate suffering, not to cause it. We pray that you would give them wise counsel and a passion for goodness. We ask for your help as we navigate the complexities of living in this world at this time. Guide us, O Lord, by your spirit to live and speak compassionately with the same love that you have shown us since the beginning of the world. God, we thank you so much for that love and for that grace. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's scripture reading um, comes from selected verses from John chapter 6. And these are the words that Jesus spoke as he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum the day after he had miraculously fed the 5,000. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? There are some of you who do not believe. From this day, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Bernard, please come teach us. Well, let us pray. Well, God, our Father, we uh, gather now in your presence and we do believe that this uh, son of yours is the bread of life. We pray that as we uh, come and we approach the scriptures that you would open to us uh, these words of life and that you would strengthen in us our conviction uh, to not turn back from Jesus, but to follow him. For Lord, to whom else can we go? This Jesus, this beloved son of yours that you sent into this world has the words of eternal life. So maybe we be confirmed in our faith and in our resolve to follow him. We pray that you would keep us faithful. Uh, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning to all of you. And uh, so today is the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, there hasn't been any mention of that in the service so far. Um, you may be aware of that. Uh, Lent is a 40-day season of, in remembrance of the 40 days that Jesus fasted in the wilderness. And at the end of those 40 days, when Jesus was hungry, Satan tempted or tested him three times. And each time, Jesus resisted the temptation and he passed the test. How did he do so? Well, each time he remained faithful by remembering what God had spoken. Each time he repulsed Satan's tactics by faithfully quoting what God had spoken in the book of Deuteronomy. And he remained faithful to God and his word. And he did so where previously both Adam and Israel had not done so. They had not been faithful to God's word. They were unfaithful and they were disobedient. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't be like them. Follow the example of Jesus. Keep faithful and carry on. Well, Tuesday was a day of wild partying. It was Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It was uh, carnival in Rio. And then it was a day of excess and consumption. Uh, meanwhile, in England, uh, they held uh, lots of pancake races since it was Shrove Tuesday. Uh, and then the next day, well, the next day was Valentine's Day, a celebration of love, but it was also Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. And all over the world, people gathered for Ash Wednesday services. And in those services, worshipers came forward to have ashes smeared on their foreheads in the form of a cross. They did so to remember that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. People recited Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
and church choirs sang Allegri's wonderful setting of this psalm, the Miserere, have mercy on me, O God. Congregants recited the collect for the day, the collect for Ash Wednesday. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made, and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins, may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord. So at Lent we remember that we are prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, as the hymn says. And despite us being dust, God desires relationship with us. This is why David could write Psalm 51. Convicted of his grievous sins, he sought the Lord looking for mercy and forgiveness. And like David, we believe God's promise through Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wants to be found by us. He delights to show mercy. But what if we stop looking for him? What if we turn our back on him? What if we stop being faithful? Well, we return today to the book of Hebrews after a break of nearly six months, and we come to the most controversial sentence in the entire book, indeed, perhaps the most controversial sentence in the whole New Testament. And anyone who preaches or teaches the book of Hebrews will be asked uh, two main questions. First question is, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Uh, well, that's the easy question, and it has an easy answer. We don't know. <laughs> but it wasn't Paul. Um, perhaps it was Apollos or somebody like him, but we just don't know. And then the second question is much more difficult, and it's this. What about Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4? Now, some people ask that out of genuine curiosity. Some ask it because they want to pigeonhole you. Some ask it because they want to know which theological box to put the speaker in. Um, some of you have asked me this question, so some of you are anticipating today's sermon very much, and many of you don't have a clue what uh, Hebrews 6 verse 4 is about. Uh, but those of you who are interested, you're wondering where I'm going to come down, where I'm going to land. Um, so, what is this sentence that is so controversial? Well, here it is, um, although the NIV breaks it into two sentences. Uh, it's on the screen, I'll read it. It's also on the little worship folder guide that you picked up, hopefully. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Well, here be dragons. Uh, this is the third of uh, five so-called warning passages in Hebrews, and it is by far the most difficult and the most controversial. It raises a host of questions. Is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? Are the people described in verses four and five really saved or not? Is there really no way back? 
And many people bring to this text their theological framework. So on the one hand, Calvinists say that it is impossible to lose your salvation, therefore the people in verses four and five were not really saved. They only seemed to be. And Arminians, on the other hand, say that they were saved because it is possible to lose your salvation. And at stake are the doctrines of eternal security and perseverance of the saints. Now, I'm actually not interested in approaching the text this way from either side, so I may already uh, disappoint some of you and deflate some bubbles. What I do want to do is see how this troubling sentence fits, reads on its own, and then how it fits within the flow of the whole book, and particularly within the flow of the surrounding verses. And I think this will be more faithful to the author's intention and more beneficial for us. Now the sentence flows out of the previous paragraph. Although NIV, uh, unfortunately, uniquely among the major translations, and to me inexplicably, uh, omits a four that begins the sentence and ties it back to verse three. And then it omits another one at the beginning of verse seven. Well, the section, chapter five, verse 11 to six, verse 12, forms a tight unit. And I had originally intended, um, in laying out uh, how I would preach through Hebrews, that we hear these 16 verses as three consecutive sermons. But changes to the preaching schedule mean that there's been a nearly six month gap since the first section, uh, 5.11 to 6.3. A little bit later, I will seek to bridge that gap. Um, but remember, that should be a four at the beginning of verse four here to make that connection. So the sentence properly begins, for it is impossible. But before the preacher tells us what is impossible, he describes those for whom this is impossible. And he gives five descriptions of these people, the first four being positive, and these certainly seem to describe recipients of God's grace. And I hope that they actually describe us also. The first description is, those who have once been enlightened. Now light and darkness is a frequent metaphor pair in scripture. We take light for granted, but this metaphor would have been especially meaningful before the days of electric light. Um, indeed, the early church had a hymn sung at the lighting of lamps in the evening, Phos Hilaron, joyous light, so significant was light for them. God who dwells in infinite light has shone his light on us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ. And to the Ephesians he wrote, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us to believe. So God has already enlightened us, but Paul prays for yet more enlightenment. And in both cases, enlightenment leads to knowledge of God. In particular, to knowledge of what God has done in Christ. It is God himself who enlightens us through his spirit. There is a one-time action. We were once enlightened, but then there is an ongoing enlightening 
as he works in us through his spirit. When he does so, it's like we pass from darkness to light, from night to day, from old to new, from death to life. And this is exactly what it felt like for me 46 years ago, just after I turned 18. My physical sight had not changed, but now I could see. Now God was real to me, and I was filled with a passion to know him more. Now I could see Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory and the light of the world. It really felt like I passed from darkness to light. And this enlightenment is the first stage of the Christian journey, and it takes a divine act so that we can see and know. Secondly, these people are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. The gift comes from heaven, from God. Out of his generosity and love, he gives us numerous gifts. He gives us a gift of paying attention to us and showing us favor. He gives us the gift of looking on us with kindness and love. He gives the gift of showing us mercy and grace, withholding what we deserve and giving us what we don't deserve. It is a heavenly gift, not simply because that's where God is, but also it's a gift of heaven itself. God gives us a foretaste of heaven, of the realm where he is in all his glory. And God gifts us because he wants a relationship with us. He initiates. And the gift expects a response. And we respond to his initiative firstly by receiving his gift. We don't simply sample it, nibbling at the edges. Tasted here implies that we fully experience the gift. And our reception and embrace of his gift confirms that relationship. But a relationship requires nurturing and two-way communication. It requires reciprocity. So what can we possibly give back to God? Now, God expects something back for us. Now, I don't think he's expecting back from us that we do great things for him, or rather he views the things we can do for him as being great things. So what can we give back? We can't possibly give on the same level as God, so it's unbalanced reciprocity, but we give. We respond in gratitude and praise. We respond in loyalty and service. We respond in faithfulness and obedience. God gives himself to us, and we respond by giving ourselves to God. He is our benefactor, our patron. We sing his praises. And thirdly, these people are those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And the verb here is actually passive. So we are those who have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So again, God is the implicit subject here. He makes us partakers. And the preacher has already used this word partakers twice um, back in chapter three. We are partakers of the heavenly calling and we have become partakers of Christ. We actually participate in Christ. We participate in his death and his resurrection, symbolized by baptism. We die to our old self and we live to our new self. We participate in Christ's new resurrection life in the age to come, experienced right now in this age. And this participation is through the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence in us. 
Then fourthly, these people are those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age, of the coming age. Again, the word tasted does not mean merely sampled, nibbled around the edges, but fully experienced. We have experienced the goodness of God's word, or better, we have experienced God's good word. Because in Israel's scriptures, with which the preacher is thoroughly familiar, God's good words are his promises of blessing, contrasted with what are called his calamitous words, warning of curses for unfaithfulness and disobedience. We have already begun to experience the fulfillment of God's promises. How so? Well, we are already experiencing the power of the coming age right now in this present age. Christ was resurrected into the new age. And when we participate in Christ, we too enter into the life of the new age experienced now. This is what eternal life means. Not that we live forever, though that will be true when death is fully defeated, but that we already live right now the life of the coming age. You see, Christ's church is a colony of the future living now in the present. And it is a colony of heaven living here on earth. So these four descriptions certainly seem to describe those who have begun to follow Jesus. People will continue to debate whether these people were genuinely saved or not. But in the context of Hebrews, it seems clear to me that these people have embarked well on their pilgrimage. And I hope these four descriptions describe all of us who have begun our journey of following Christ, our pilgrimage. And if they don't, I invite you to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. And there are opportunities to do so. So we've just heard that uh, next Sunday, there'll be another round, a new round of Discovery Bible Studies, starting up Sunday afternoons, led by Courtney Patel. Uh, and then a little further on the horizon is another series of Discovery Dinners, um, Sunday evenings, both opportunities for learning more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Well, these are four wonderful positive descriptions, but they're followed by a troubling fifth one and who have fallen away. How can this be? How is it possible for those who have received and experienced all these good gifts to fall away? Well, on one hand, this falling may, away may be a deliberate act of apostasy, a decisive rejection of God and of Christ, or it may be a gradual drifting away which the writer to the Hebrews warns of elsewhere. Imperceptible at first, but finally you realize it's unmistakable. You have drifted far away. Here I'm reminded of the proverb, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And so God has initiated relationship with us in Christ and through his spirit. But relationship requires reciprocity and cultivation. This is true for married couples, husbands and wives. It's true for parents and children. And it's true for us and God. And inattention makes the affections grow cold. The relationship can fizzle out through neglect just as easily as through outright rejection. 
Now, some Christians might wrongly wonder if this is happening to them. Many Christians grow through periods of discouragement, even spiritual depression. Hearts and minds do not have the joy that they once had. But still, you keep trying to look to Jesus and you long for better days. You pray with David, again in Psalm 51, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Well, if this is your prayer, you have nothing to fear. The sentence as Hebrews is not addressed to you. God will not cast away one who looks to him, however weak the gaze, however faint the heart. He sees you. He knows your heart, your mind, your desires. He knows that you love him, however low you feel. But what about those who cast God away from their presence? This is what those who have fallen away have done. And now we finally learn what is impossible for them. It is impossible to renew them unto repentance. In falling away from the path, whether by outright apostasy or gradually losing interest, they have denied the reality of God's transforming presence in their lives in Christ and through the Spirit. They've rejected his gifts and his promises. They have scorned his gift of relationship. They have given up on God and cast him away. And the preacher spells out the implications of their actions. They have rejected Christ. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So in rejecting God's gift, they are putting Christ back on the cross as nothing more than just another rebel killed by the Romans. Crucifixion was done in public in the most visible locations so that all could see the pain, the horror, the shame. It was the most degrading, dehumanizing, disgraceful manner of execution. It robbed the victim of every shred of dignity and honor. It expressed the total power of the executioner and the total powerlessness of the victim. When rejecting God and Christ, those who have fallen away place themselves among the executioners and the scoffing onlookers. Yet this was God's beloved on the cross. Jesus, in his faithful obedience to his Father, submitted himself to his Father's will. And that will was to submit himself to the absolute worst that a sinful, rebellious humanity could throw at him. That rebellion included his own people. Indeed, they cried the loudest for his crucifixion. And Jesus absorbed it all, the, the rejection, the pain, the shame, the cruelty. But he remained faithful to the end, crying out, it is finished. He had been faithful. He had submitted to his father. He had submitted to the cross. He had even submitted to death, but he had not submitted to evil. He did not give in to disobedience and unbelief. He did not fall away. And therein lay death's undoing, for death had no claim on him. And so God vindicated him in resurrection. And then he invited all to come to him and be baptized in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
And those who did so were filled with the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. They began living life in the new age, ushered in by the resurrection of Jesus and his entrance into the Father's presence with the offering of his own blood, which purifies from sin. God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only, his best beloved, into this sinful, disobedient world so that everyone who gives their allegiance to this Jesus, our risen and ascended Lord, might have now the life of the age to come. This is his great gift to us. He initiates a relationship with us in Christ through the enabling presence of his spirit. And this gift of relationship requires appropriate reciprocity, simply faithful obedience, loyalty. But to fall away from following Jesus is to reject all of this and go back to Jesus on the cross as just another human being. The preacher now gives an illustration of right and wrong reciprocity. And again, NIV unfortunately omits the initial four, which signals this as being an illustration. So verses seven and eight. For land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So in this illustration, there is one land which drinks the abundant rains from heaven. It is sufficiently watered with the right amount of rain at the right time of year. But the land yields two different crops. Part A produces herbage. This is vegetation that's suitable for grazing animals, for grazing sheep, for example. And this crop is evaluated as suitable for use. And in return, the land receives God's blessing. But part B of the land produces thorns and thistles. It's evaluated as worthless. And in return, a curse is near and the end will be burning. Well, this is an evocative illustration for those familiar with Israel's scriptures. Thorns and thistles are what the cursed ground brings forth after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden in Genesis 3. And then in the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah 5, which uh, men would have looked at a while ago, um, the Lord planted Israel as a vineyard on which he lavished great care. And he went to the vineyard to look for grapes, but the vineyard yielded thorns. Therefore, the Lord ruined the vineyard and abandoned it to the briars and thorns. So in this illustration of the two crops, reciprocity is expected. The land receives blessing from heaven and is expected to respond appropriately. An appropriate response brings further blessing. Inappropriate response brings curse and ultimately judgment. And the implication is clear. God blesses us with gifts, notably the gifts of relationship and reconciliation. And these gifts require our appropriate response of faithful obedience, of acceptance, of loyalty. The preacher does not want his readers to repeat the experience of the wilderness generation, which he has described in detail in chapters three and four. God brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He delivered them from the tyranny of Pharaoh who had enslaved them. And this passage through the Red Sea is the great Old Testament instance of salvation. 
God simultaneously saved his people and destroyed the enemy. But God's people did not immediately arrive at their destination. They had a twofold destination. Firstly, Mount Sinai, there to meet with God, because Moses, speaking God's name, had challenged Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. And then the second destination was the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise. The journey from Egypt to Sinai to Canaan required faith in God's promise and provision and faithfulness to his word. The people grumbled and they rebelled all the way. And finally, after the 12 spies came back with their report of the land of promise, the people rejected both God and Moses. They requested new leadership that would take them back to Egypt, which they redefined as the land flowing with milk and honey. They wanted to go back to their old way of life. They sought to cast God out of their presence, out of their lives. They said their lives were better before God came into their lives. This is what falling away means here in Hebrews. So why do we have such trouble with this sentence? Well, perhaps we have the wrong idea of salvation. And I fear that too often salvation is viewed as transactional. You say the prayer, you profess faith in Jesus, in return you get your ticket to heaven. The transaction has been completed. And the only question is, can it be undone? Uh, well, debate about this controversial sentence is also often transactional. Has the transaction actually been made or not? Are the people of, described in verses four and five described in these four ways, were they really saved or not? Had the transaction been made? But this is not how relationships work. Business relationships may be transactional. There may be a quid pro quo, but personal relationships are not transactional. This does not mean that they are not reciprocal. God invites us into relationship with himself. He has gone to great cost to make relationship possible. He offers us these gifts of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of abundant life. He's demonstrated his great, great love for us in this, that he sent his best beloved into this dark world. The world rejected that gift in the most heinous way possible, but God invites us to come to this once crucified, now risen and exalted Jesus and find forgiveness and shalom, wholeness. An acceptance of this gift is not the end as if the transaction be complete. It is the beginning of a journey. And there is a beginning and there is an end, the goal to which we are progressing. Now in the previous paragraph, 5.11 to 6.3, remember that there should be a four there at the beginning of verse four. The, writer, the preacher writes, let us move beyond the elementary, that is the beginning teachings about Christ, and be taken forward to maturity. Literally, it's let us leave behind the beginning. Now, it's not that the beginning is bad, but it's only the beginning. There's much more ahead. Therefore, let us either press on, as NASB and some other translations have it, or as NIV has it here in the passive, let us be taken forward. Because it is God through our, his spirit who wants to take us forward to 
towards that goal, towards the end. And the goal is maturity, which here means to have achieved the intended final state, to have arrived at the goal. It means to complete the journey. Now, at the end of chapter five, Jesus is described as having attained that state. There is described as he attained perfection, but it's the same word. He was faithful and reached the goal, and we are moving towards that goal also. And an unhealthy focus on getting people saved can lead to a focus on whether people are simply in or out. But the preacher is much more concerned with whether we are moving forward or not. And if we're not moving forward, then we are in danger of drifting away until we have completely fallen away. So how do we ensure that we are moving forward and avoid falling away? Well, this book of Hebrews, the writer describes it as a word of exhortation or a word of encouragement. It's essentially a sermon. It's a sermon that's meant to encourage the readers. And he repeatedly offers two remedies. First, he keeps pointing us to Jesus. He puts Jesus before us for our consideration. And he also shows that Jesus has gone before us as our forerunner, as he'll describe it later in this chapter. He faithfully finished the course set before him. He attained the goal and we follow him. This is why I've called this series Christ before us, with both these aspects in mind. Christ before our gaze to consider and Christ before us on this pilgrimage. And secondly, the preacher urges us to meet together, to encourage one another. We don't make this journey alone. We are fellow pilgrims encouraging one another to persevere. And there's also a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. They have finished the course and they are watching us and cheering us on. That's what chapter 11 is. And one of the ways we meet together is by gathering here on Sunday mornings, as we're doing now. And why do we do so? Well, in the uh, worship guide, at the top of it are these words, um, written a decade ago. We gather in worship to remind ourselves who God is, what he has done in Christ, and what he is doing through his spirit. And then our desire is to praise God, receive a fresh spirit in us, and affirm that we are family reconciled to one another, then be empowered to reach out to the world. So as we gather, we reset our gaze on the triune God. We've been distracted in all sorts of other ways throughout the week. We reset our gaze and we see that God has acted decisively in Christ and that he continues to be at work through his spirit. We respond to his initiative by returning him praise. And we refresh our bonds with one another, with our fellow pilgrims. And we go away, hopefully, with renewed resolve to keep going on our pilgrimage, to keep progressing towards that goal. I invite the band to come up as I wrap up here. So David in Psalm 51 prayed, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And God did. Though David was guilty of high-handed, deliberate sin of the worst kind, he nevertheless had a heart after God, 
And so God was pleased to show him mercy and to restore him. How much more do we have access to God's mercy as we make our pilgrimage? We may be discouraged. We may go through periods of suffering, of trials, of temptations. But we have a faithful and merciful high priest in God's very presence. And within the larger flow of the book of Hebrews, this passage of exhortation and warning is bracketed between two invitations to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need, which is all the time. We have a merciful God who loves to show us love and kindness. He's empowered us and he bids us be loyal to him as we walk this journey of faith. May God, through his grace and his spirit in us, keep us faithful as we walk this path together. Amen. Now receive this benediction. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling away, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.